DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from Dr. Lillis's lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's an author of several books, including Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation on Prayer, and Fire from Above, Christian Contemplation and Mystical Wisdom. In this particular series of conversations, we'll focus on the spiritual writings of St. Teresa of Avila, and in particular, her autobiography. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. Hello, Chris. It's so good to be with you. I am so excited to be with you. I'm always excited to be with you, but right now, I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. Is the official title, The Life of the Holy Mother, Teresa of Jesus? Yes, it is. In Spanish, La Vita. And it was her first spiritual work that she wrote, and she had to basically invent terms that influence both Spanish but also mystical theology for centuries to come, because some terms didn't yet exist in Spanish for experiences that she had and her explanations and so forth. So she had to come up with a whole bunch of metaphors to kind of illustrate what she was talking about in prayer. And she identifies kind of very important issues for the growth and development of the life of prayer and we're talking about contemplative prayer or mental prayer, not as an escape from reality, which today people hear contemplation and they think that you kind of disengage and hide in a cave somewhere. For her, mental prayer was the pathway into the mission of the church. She will wind up leading one of the most powerful renewal movements in the history of the church. It will be a renewal movement that impacts Spain in a singular way. Its whole culture and self-understanding as a people are impacted by her. She voices something at the very heart of Spain and the Spanish. And today, I, I would say there, there are many of the Spanish maybe aren't as conversant of, with her. They probably heard of her, but not as conversant with her. And they've maybe lost touch with the heart of their culture insofar as they've lost touch with her, that she witnesses to something that is, I, I would call it the deepest truth about Spain. And really, it's a truth about being Catholic, and it's a truth about being a beloved son and daughter of God. She pours this out in these words. They're humble. She's self-effacing. She will see that she's a little bit chatty. She goes here, she goes there. And just when you think you're losing the conversation, she says something so profound, you just want to stop and go to prayer. This book, after she wrote it, several copies were made, and the convents that she had recently founded all wanted copies because they wanted to understand doctrine of prayer, and they wanted to know more about their, their foundress, and so copies were made. But then the Spanish Inquisition was concerned because of the teaching on mental prayer that's in the text. So the books were gathered up, and forbidden to be read while the Inquisition studied the works. Ultimately, in the long run, the works were approved. They didn't find anything doctrinally erroneous, but for a little while, there, there was some concern. She had a great ally, and probably later in the future conversation, we'll get to talk a little bit more about St. John of Avila, 
he's not St. John of the Cross, St. John of Avila, was a young diocesan priest who began preaching in Andalusia. He, he was called the Apostle of Andalusia and was noted as a great preacher, but also a great mystic. And so she submitted this work to him. And, and his, his only caveat to her was that everything she wrote was true, but not all souls experience everything the way she describes. And so it's with that maybe that with his observation that maybe we begin our conversation about this book. It has some powerful truths about prayer and how to grow in spiritual maturity. And it has powerful truths about sin and the need for conversion and how mental prayer or contemplative prayer can open up a pathway of conversion in one's life that fires this heart for mission in the church. You know, the thing that surprised me when I first picked up a copy of the book, I thought I was going to read an autobiography, right? Which was more or less just about the events, the facts of her life, those kinds of things. What I found is, as you've been talking about, Auntie, was this incredible book of spiritual formation that stands on its own. Even if she hadn't written The Way of Perfection or The Interior Castle, it still would be a tremendous gift to the whole spiritual patrimony, wouldn't it? This book would by itself be a tremendous gift to the whole patrimony. In this book, she begins to work out certain questions. Well, she introduces certain questions that she doesn't really get to work out until later in The Way of Perfection. And then finally, she gets really precise in the spiritual castle, this anybody can disagree with me on this point, but my and as I work with students, I always like them to read the life and to go on this journey with her, because in the life, you get what I would call the most accurate picture of her own spiritual journey. It's accurate, and in the spiritual castle, you get the most precise, her most precise kind of explanation of what growing into Christian perfection looks like. So precision comes as she matures in the spiritual life and gains the gift of wisdom. But what she starts out with is the life, which is kind of like her concrete particular witness. And this is very much her story about her journey, but she tries to tell it in a way that will help the sisters who are in her convent be encouraged to embark on the same journey to help them remember why it was they went into the convent. Insofar as that's the purpose of this work, it is an amazing work. It does exactly what you said. The other thing, just close to it, she's going to, in a later chapter, we'll get to the beginning of a, a deeper conversion for her. And we will discover that right around the time of her deeper conversion, she reads two works that probably influence this one. And the first of those two works is the Confessions of St. Augustine. The Confession of St. Augustine is a little bit what you just described. For Teresa, St. Augustine doesn't give us an autobiography, really, in the Confessions in terms of historical events and that sort of thing, people in historical events. You do meet people, you do hear about some of the events of his life, and we will do the same thing here, especially in the early chapters. But what is more important in the confessions 
is his conversation with God that unfolds and his conversion into deeper and deeper intimacy with the Lord. Well, that work stamped this work. It's not exactly the same kind of work. It's showing us what you might call interiority, the workings of the heart, that it's a story of the heart, of a journey of the heart. And the other work that she was also influenced by was a work that influenced the confessions and actually led to St. Augustine's conversion, and that is The Life of Antony by St. Athanasius. The Life of Antony tells a little bit about the biography of Antony, but if you study it more closely, the biographical sketch that you get of Anthony is simply there to help present a deeper understanding of the spiritual life. And it's, it's one of the first works of its kind that has a tremendous impact. It impacts St. Augustine. It also impacts Teresa of Avila. So between the life of Antony and the confessions of St. Augustine, we have this genre of spiritual literature, which speaks about an interior journey of the soul. We'll get a very similar kind of work with Therese of Lisieux and her work, Story of a Soul. Biographical facts are kind of not as important in this as the spiritual truths that the facts she does tell us about are meant to convey. It's also really compelling, isn't it, that this autobiography would be read by men and women who would in themselves be so touched by her earthiness her humility, her wisdom, really, so much so that it would be a facilitator of their own spiritual conversion. And I'm thinking, of course, that one of the great standout stories is Teresa Benedict of the Cross, Edith Stein. But I know she also was very influential in the life of Alphonsus Liguori. That's right. It's a powerful thing to be able to study how the saints have influenced each other through history. In our discussions together, Chris, we'll get to kind of enter into the same stream and people who are listening to us who are kind of join this conversation with us, they'll get to enter into the stream. We'll, we'll get to hear the story of a saint who's been influenced by saints and who has influenced saints down through the centuries. And we will be part of that conversation now too. So it's, this is a very exciting and very beautiful kind of conversation to have. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. St. Teresa speaks to us today, saying, Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God 
never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. O God, who through your Spirit raised up St. Teresa of Jesus to show the Church the way to seek perfection, grant that we may always be nourished by the food of her heavenly teaching and fired with longing for true holiness. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. St. Teresa, pray for us. That we may become worthy of the promises of Jesus Christ. Amen. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. Well, as we enter into Chapter 1, of course, we're going to hear about her mom and her dad. Yes, and so her father, Don Alonso Sanchez de Cepeda, had two wives. He had three children with his first wife and then remarried Teresa's mother, Beatriz Davila Ahumada, and this coming together of this family, they would have nine children. Beatriz was only 14 years old when she got married. She'll have nine children, and she'll die when Teresa of Avila is only 13 years old. So it gives you a little bit of a sense of they are not a destitute family. They're a well-off family. But life in Spain wasn't so easy, and medical attention wasn't as readily available as it is today. And so for many in Spain at this time, life was short, and this touches Teresa of Avila and kind of forms her. She makes reference to it all the way in the very beginning. I just have to step back. I mean, when you talk about, you know, how the experience of family was felt by Teresa at that time, and you said it was so different. So I'm, I'm just still stunned. A mother at 14 who has nine children. Wow. And yet she had an influence on her daughter in some good ways and in some ways that may not have necessarily been helpful. Yes. Well, what we know, one good way that her mother and father impacted her was they were both virtuous people. They were both very chaste. And they were also both readers. And although she says the kind of literature her mother read didn't help her very much, actually introduced a little bit of a moral crisis for her. Books on chivalry, St. Ignatius of Loyola also loved this literature before his conversion. And so it was is a diversion. And the mother, a very young woman, kind of permitted her daughter to engage in these works herself. But what she remembers is, first and foremost, isn't so much anything they did to introduce something that w- would become a struggle for her. The first thing she remembers about them is that they're virtuous. Her first line in this is, is actually quite beautiful. There's different translations, but this is Alison Pierce translation. If I had not been so wicked, it would have been a help to me that I had parents who were virtuous and who feared God, and also that the Lord granted me his favor to make me good. So she's saying, even though I had great parents, 
and even though the Lord was giving me his favor very early on, she wasn't a good little girl all the time. And that's what comes out in this very first chapter was a kind of theological principle, you might say. And this has to do with rearing children, but it's kind of true of all of us before we develop a spiritual life. It is so easy to learn bad habits and so difficult to learn good ones. And so Teresa of Avila is around, or Teresa de Jesus, she's around the wonderful example of her mother and father. Her mother kind of indulges this kind of less than edifying literature, but she's a a model of chastity, a model of virtue by our standards today, completely open to life and dedicated to her family. And she has the strong father who also enjoys reading. And he enjoys reading in Spanish. This is kind of, we're at the very beginning of what you might call the Spanish Renaissance, where Spanish literature is being written and people are beginning to read it. Up until around this time, especially in Spain, almost all the books were in Latin. And so most people didn't have have access to them. And so I don't know how to describe this better, but it's a little bit like the information technology revolution that we're going through right now with computers and um, social media and information technology and maybe even AI, that explosion of having all this information at your fingertips, they were experiencing something analogous at this, this time. The idea of having your own books and being able to read your own books, the printing press had just come out. And this made being able to study and think about life and think about things more accessible for more people than had been the case for centuries throughout medieval Europe and medieval Spain. So this is her home. You might call it a upper middle class home, which has a lot of new temptations going on inside it, kind of like our homes today. And how do you as parents deal with the twists and turns? And if you bear in mind how young Teresa Vavila's mother is, when she's entrusted with running a household, you can kind of excuse her for not really realizing the dangers of pop literature and encouraging your daughter to also start reading. You want, as parents today, getting our kids to read is, you know, we want our kids to read. We've begun to realize that we have to be very vigilant over what they're reading because not all authors have our children's safety and welfare and salvation in mind while they're writing. They're, some of them are completely oblivious to those values. Well, it was the same thing at Teresa of Avila in her home. And so that she will need to be healed this early exposure, uh, not only through literature, but also there was a family member who came in who she had a virtuous family member came in and she makes this observation virtuous family member and never imitated any of virtues. A little bit more of a, a wild card comes into the house and she imitates everything she does. Children are like that. And evil in the beginning is like that. Bad habits are like that. They're easier to acquire. And once you get touched by them, it takes a long time to heal from them. And this will be part of her spiritual journey. In this first chapter, she will bring us very close. And she talks about her mother's death already at the age of 12. She refers to her mother again throughout in, in the book, but this particular 
experience, I mean, how traumatizing for a 12-year-old girl, especially at that particular moment, all of us women out there, that age of 12, that's a very tender, vulnerable spot. Yeah, she's a very young lady who needs to be mothered, and God calls her mother home. And so Teresa of Avila's response to that was to entrust herself to Our Lady. And I've said that there were kind of bad habits kind of introduced, but this was a very pious home. She and her brother would build hermitages out in the orchard. She describes that and pretend to be monks, and she would pretend to be in a convent. And they would plan together on going to the land of the Moors to get martyred. At one point, her uncle intercepts her and her brother outside. I actually stood outside of Avila, the place where, where the uncle found his nephew and niece as they were marching off to get martyred. And we're not dealing with severely rebellious uh, young people. We're dealing with basically good young people. She dedicates herself to Our Lady. And she says that throughout her life, because of that dedication, throughout her life, Our Lady made herself a felt presence whenever she needed her. And while that gift of Our Lady's presence can never give as much as having your mother here in this life could give you in the same way. There are other graces Our Lady can give you. And these graces, Teresa will learn how to receive. She will actually be mothered by Our Lady. If you think about the, the reality that the Carmelite vocation is a vocation dedicated to Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And so it's an order dedicated to Our Lady it may be the first order dedicated to Our Lady. And somebody can check that historically for me, but this connection with Our Lady will stamp her life and come to maturity as she enters religious life. Again, you had mentioned the concern about the influences that can lead us astray, as it were, cause us to not follow a life of virtue, I'm trying to be very delicate here. And she speaks to us a truth that we need to have today. You have to be careful about your children's friendships because it can do damage for years and years and years. Am I paraphrasing her accurately? Yep. I think it's just so true. You know, what happens in the very early years of one's life is so formative. And so there's a kind of vigilance that we need to have. And, you know, we all know the temptation, you know, the kids have been all crazy all through the house and you're on wit's end and turning on some form of entertainment so that they're kind of vegged out in front of it so that you can catch a breath. Well, on one hand, it's good to catch a breath every once in a while. But today, just like at this time, there are new forms of entertainment that we have to be so vigilant over about what they're telling our children and the seeds that they plant in our, our children's hearts. And, and as parents, we, we have a special grace to be able to recognize those dangers and to deal with them, but we have to have the courage to act, also the determination to act. We can't be passive about creating an environment in our family where children can survive. I, one way to look at it, you know, as parents, what are we trying to do in our home? We're trying to make our home a sacred place, a place that's protected against the kind of competitiveness of the outside world. 
And so the walls of our home, outside the walls of our home are all kinds of different social forces and cultural movements and things that are going on in the world. But inside the home, this is a place for a holy exchange of hearts and beautiful conversations and tears and laughter. It's a place where we protect innocence uh, because it is sacred. And in the innocence that we protect, to protect it, we have to teach a lot of self-control and introduce very early on saying no to certain things. I do not doubt in Teresa of Avila, even though she doesn't explore it very deeply, uh, I do not doubt that Teresa of Avila's parents and her, her father were vigilant about what went into the home and came out of the home. I, I think they were very pious people, as she says. And at the same time, notwithstanding their goodwill and their efforts, things got into the house. Well, that's going to happen too. Maybe part of this story is also notwithstanding our best efforts to keep our homes sacred and protected as parents, notwithstanding that, sometimes things get in. And if they do, they influence our children. That's not the end of the story. It's just part of the battle of life. And so as parents, we're going to have to help them deal with that battle too. We'll continue this conversation in our next episode. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or on whatever platform you obtain your podcasts. There, too, you can also listen to an audio version of the complete autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.